Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight analysis and, of course, debate into all the subjects you're talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. Today we've got updates, important ones, from Newcastle, Chelsea, amongst others, as well as our popular Heroes and Villains segment towards the end of the pod. We will start, however, in the northeast of England. And Duncan, you've led the way on this story with regards to the potential takeover of Newcastle United by the uh, Saudi Arabian Public Investment Fund, as well as, of course, PCP, uh, Amanda Stavely and uh, others. We've, it's been very quiet with regards to any kind of information um, on uh, what's happening. And of course, Newcastle United fans are very nervous, uh, understandably, about whether or not uh, their um, much-loved chairman, Mike Ashley, might or might not be uh, leaving the club. Uh, what can you tell us, Duncan, in terms of where things stand at this moment in time? Yeah, well, we're now a remarkable three and a half months into the big Geordie takeover. Um, documents submitted to the Premier League on April 9th. Um, an expectation initially from the buying parties that the process of approval from the Premier League would take three to four weeks, uh, an expectation which has been wildly off the mark. Um, for a long time now, the buying parties were expecting a decision imminently. Um, obviously, that didn't come. Um, been talking to someone involved in the, the process, and uh, the guidance I have is quite interesting in that I, I would say there's a sense that there's more doubt over the takeover going through than I've heard previously. I'm not saying that they don't expect it to happen, that they're not confident about it, but um, previously the, the stance was very much, we do not see a way in which the Premier League can deny us the rights to take over this club. Um, you know, we've, we've done due diligence on this. We know the processes involved. We know what's happened with other applications. We believe that we adhere to all the rules relevant to take over. Our financial plans are certainly sufficient to um, meet uh, Premier League concerns over whether a, a party taking over a club are able to fund the project they want to put in place. Now, um, I think it's understandable given the length of time it's taken. There, there seems to be a little bit of doubt there. What I have been told is that they do not believe that if um, the approval does not come through, if uh, the Premier League says no, we will not allow PIF, PCP to take over this club, that we'll, it will be over either piracy or human rights issues, which have been the two most prominent um, matters raised by opponents of the takeover. Um, those including uh, the BN um, television network that owns uh, the rights to broadcast Premier League football and other major football competitions in um, the Middle East and North African region and whose, bro and whose um, broadcasts have been blocked in Saudi Arabia for a number of years. 
and um, the party saying that uh, a country with the human rights record of Saudi Arabia should not be allowed to sports wash its image by buying a football club. And these prominently include the, the uh, fiancé of uh, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed by the Saudi Arabian regime um, in Turkey. Um, and for whom the the leader of Saudi Arabia has um, accepted responsibility for that um, killing, um, although he said he was not um, involved in in sanctioning it or uh, directing it, but he has publicly stated that he accepts responsibility as it was um, uh, done by uh, people who were in the employ of the Saudi Arabian regime. Um, however. From the takeover perspective, the guidance I have is that those um, questions over piracy in particular, every question that the Premier League has put to them via Newcastle United has been answered. Um, and I'm told that the questions over the piracy matter ended around a month ago. They say there has been further questions. They will not tell me what those questions are over, um, but um, they feel they have answered them um, in a fashion that should allow the Premier League to approve. And they feel that uh, essentially they've dealt with everything possible at this stage and therefore they would expect an answer on approval from the Premier League soon because they cannot see um, any other areas where they can be questioned on and, and, and uh, provide answers on. In fact, they describe the process as being more intense than anything they expected and uh, that it has addressed every conceivable issue and every conceivable question. Now, that makes sense because, as we've said in the podcast from the start, this is clearly the most controversial takeover of a, a Premier League club ever. It's had more attention focused on it than any takeover ever, um, partly because football wasn't being played for a, a long um, period of this takeover assessment. So that allowed uh, newspapers and, and other media to focus on the issue and dig into it more and put pressure on the Premier League over it uh, in a way that hasn't happened before. And therefore, you can understand why the Premier League want to be absolutely certain um, that whatever verdict they give is watertight. And Remember, the pressure here isn't simply from opponents of the takeover saying you should not be allowing one of your clubs to be taken over by the Saudi Arabia regime because of piracy issues or because of human rights issues. It will also be from the buying party and potentially from the selling party, who remember Mike Ashley has agreed to sell. He's committed to selling to the Saudis. He's signed documents. If the Premier League give approval, the deal should go through for that £300 million um, pound enterprise value. Um, and he gets the money um, and a significant profit on the sale of the club. So uh, there is a potential for challenge for both Mike Ashley and from the Saudis if the Premier League say no to this. And then I think there, there's another issue here. Um, which can develop if the Premier League take too long over this and it is being mentioned to me, is that the Premier League's uh, time it's taken to make this decision is now placing Newcastle United at a significant disadvantage in terms of the coming Premier League season. Um, a significant disadvantage in the transfer market because they cannot make decisions 
on the basis that they will be a club with new owners with significant in, investment and revenue uh, available to inject into the transfer market because they do not know if that's going to happen. And the closer and closer we get to the opening of the official opening of the transfer window next week, effectively the transfer window has been open for months now and business is being done. But the closer we get to the official opening and the deadline, the harder it becomes for Newcastle United to act with next season's Premier League in mind because they don't know what budget they're operating on and they can't implement the plans PIF and PCP have to strengthen their squad and uh, and push higher up the Premier League um, in the 2021 season. Another factor in this, Duncan, um, and it may or may not be significant at this point, uh, we can't speculate on that, but we can mention it, and that is that PCP, which is the uh, figurehead, if you like, of this particular takeover, are currently involved, and Amanda Staveley, who of course is the named person um, in the uh, takeover with regards to uh, leading the negotiations, are involved in a very high-profile court case against Barclays Bank, which, of course, is a very uh, major institution, both in the UK and internationally, uh, over a commission that PCP claim uh, was not uh, rewarded to them uh, when they uh, engineered a loan for a bailout for the bank during the financial crisis. Now, has been mentioned to me by uh, several contacts in the city and certainly the legal profession that it would be, um, let's just say, uh, ill-advised of the Premier League to uh, clear a takeover which involved a company who are currently um, in a fairly acrimonious uh, court battle with regards to uh, financial payments which allegedly were not made etc because evidence uh, which they will have no obvious or indeed obligationary um, access to in terms of disclosure could then come to light which could embarrass PCP, could embarrass the Premier League and indeed therefore the takeover bid uh, for Newcastle United um, and maybe and as, as I said, this is not a case of it, you know, it's definitely um, why this is being held up. But it may be the case that the Premier League want to wait until that court case is resolved that make a decision with regards to uh, the takeover being approved. If that is the case, then Newcastle United fans are probably in for a very long wait um, because it, <laughs> just, the evidence hasn't been completed in that court case. And um, uh, I think, yeah. I, I'm told that the judge has, once evidence is completed, the judge can take up to six months to uh, make a decision on the case. Interesting, I suppose, in this context to note that the sponsors of the Premier League are Barclays. <laughs> Indeed. Um, does that does that constitute a conflict of interest? I'm not sure. Um, look, there is intrigue, I think, all over the place with the potential takeover of Newcastle United and why it's taking so long. We did expect a verdict uh, once restart got underway. It's not come. And 
I think there is a bit of concern, um, certainly amongst the Geordie faithful, that they will be disadvantaged in the transfer market if they don't get the chance. We go from Newcastle to Chelsea, where it's an understanding that Petr Cech, who is uh, positioned as a, a special football advisor to the club, uh, very close with Marina Granovskaya, who is the de facto chief executive and transfer guru at the club, will travel to Germany this week, certainly within the next six days, to speak to Bayer Leverkusen about reducing their demands in terms of a fee for Kai Havertz. The club believe that they have become uh, quite close to agreeing a deal with the player and his representatives regarding the contract. And interestingly, Duncan, it's a contract which would work out certainly um, way below the kind of figures that Chelsea normally would pay for a player in terms of salary over years of contract. The player currently is believed to earn around €15,000 per week. Chelsea are offering him a much more generous contract, up to €60,000. But again, that would be way below the £150,000 to £200,000 per week that their top earners currently earn. And therefore, uh, if they can negotiate Leverkusen down with regards to the fee, Currently, they are asking for around £90 million, £100 million seems to be the norm in Germany these days. Um, They would get something, we're not saying something of a bargain, but still, uh, looking at the recruitment of Timo Werner for €60 million, if it were around that kind of figure, Duncan, then you would say that Chelsea have managed to secure uh, a very, very, talented player with a whole lot of potential still ahead of him to fulfil for a very good price. And also, as we said, for a contract uh, fee, which would be reasonable in current climate. Yeah, Chelsea, it's very interesting the way they're operating in this market because they are, they've already taken advantage to secure Timo Werner, um, player Liverpool, had lined up and in normal circumstances where Liverpool prepared to match the transfer fee, you would fully have expected him to go there. But Chelsea have, have used um, the, the impasse some clubs have in buying players because of COVID to come in and take um, Timo Werner. And they're now trying to do it with Kai Havertz as well, a player who, who had been keen on moving to Real Madrid. Um, no guarantee he would actually have gone to Real Madrid, but Real Madrid certainly have said that they will not be buying players at that level in the, the, the transfer market this summer. So it's given them the opportunity to try and agree a fee with Leverkusen and, uh, and convince the player using Frank Lampard's um, skills uh, as, a, as a man-to-man coach um, uh, to convince uh, players that, Chelsea is the right club to go to and, and show a career path for them um, to take uh, the lead in this um, area. And it's kind of ironic that part of the reason they are able to spend in this window is because of the transfer ban they had last summer. So they do have stored cash because they, they, they were prevented from spending any um money on new players coming into the squad last summer and then um, 
decided not to spend money in January when the transfer ban had been lifted uh, because of internal conflict over who the right individuals um, to spend that money on were in January. We talked in detail at the time about the conflict between Frank Lampard and Granovskaya over um, recruiting up front rather than recruiting in defence, an issue that, that hasn't um, gone away. And and we'll see how much of the this budget they have is is dedicated to the defence um, if they get that deal um, with Havertz complete. Um, I think you, it's also important to note, as you did, what difference a, a player's current salary has on these deals. So Havertz signed his last contract in 2017 um, while he was uh, still 18 years of age. So you can see from that that the, the financial level he was he is on at present is far below his um, performance level in European football. And when clubs are calculating these deals, they always do it on the basis of what's the total cost of, of hiring the player, transfer fee plus the salary we have to give him. Um, I think quite often when these things are looked at externally, the, the, the analysis of fans is, oh, well, 100 million euro um, on the transfer fee, that's the assessment. Is he a 100 million euro player or not? That calculation is, is more or less irrelevant for the clubs. It's the total cost, which is the important one. And that's why you know, an individual like Kai Havertz is appealing and, and why an individual like Ansu Fati has a lot of interest in European football at present because he has broken into the Barcelona team. It's highly regarded by that club uh, now as a future talent, but he's still on a B um, team contract at Barcelona. His wages are minimal. Um, so even if you have to pay over the, uh, the 125 million euro uh, amount, which is the, the, the highest base um, transfer fee offer that Barcelona have had proposed to them so far and which they've rejected along with previous offers they've rejected, you can your total cost of that deal comes down because you only have to um, increase Ansu's uh, wages up to a level which will be less than um, for an experienced player in your squad, um, which makes them more attractive and makes clubs open to to paying these higher fees for players. So, yeah, it's um, they're being strategic um, and uh, and they're. they're they're using an opportunity um, that's been presented to them by unusual circumstances of the of the COVID pandemic to try and get ahead of opponents in, in the transfer market and try and create a, a better squad going forward for next season and also secure players who will increase in value um, going forward, um, make the balance sheet look better, um, help them with FFP going forward, to what extent FFP remains in place. And as we've discussed in previous podcasts, Granovskaya is very, very conscious about uh, profitable transfer market deals. That part of her success as chief executive of Chelsea has been using the transfer market in intelligent ways to make Chelsea's balance sheet look better, um, as well as try and improve the, the squad on the field. And as we've previously reported on the pod, uh, Chelsea are confident that um, should they recruit Havertz, that they have uh, enough interest 
in other midfielders currently at the club that they will be able to sell. So it will be a case of at least one out and one in, which, as Duncan rightly says, will make that uh, Marina Abacus look a lot better uh, with regards to um, the numbers when the financial results are published. Problem for Chelsea has been Kepa Arizabalaga this season with regards to his form. Not the only club, of course, with goalkeeper problems. We think about David De Gea um, against Chelsea uh, in the FA Cup semi-final last Sunday. But uh, it is our understanding that the club retained confidence uh, to a degree in Kepa. Um, he has not been dropped and also... Petr Cech, who we mentioned, is the um, senior and uh, very much trusted football advisor to the board, uh, believes that Kepa uh, will overcome uh, certain off-field difficulties, which may or may not have had an influence on his self-confidence and form. Duncan, it's not always the case that with such a specialist position, um, the uh, simple solution is to go out and spend a whole load of money on a new player. And indeed, Kepa was a very expensive signing. And he's only 24 as well. Uh, do you think that Czech's confidence in Kepa and that he can come through this is justified? Statistics are very bad. Um, his performances have... From the, from the eye point of view, just watching the way he plays as a goalkeeper, and in my view, have been suspect from the, the start of his time at Chelsea. Um, you pointed I, out, Duncan, that Hakim Ziyech, who ironically Chelsea have now signed, beat him twice on his height when uh, Chelsea played Ajax in the Champions League. I think from from the very start, it's, I, I watched his early performances for Chelsea after they made him the most expensive goalkeeper in history. And he looked like a goalkeeper who makes some very good reaction saves, but does not dominate his area. Um, physically, you would have had a question mark about him for the Premier League because he's not a powerful muscular figure and he's not very tall as a goalkeeper. And he was making bad mistakes. He's been making bad mistakes throughout his time at Chelsea, unnecessary errors. So he he's never, in my view, got close to looking um, the standard of goalkeeper he should be for the, the price that was paid for him. And of course, he wasn't Chelsea's first choice in that uh, transfer market. And of course, they were forced into buying a goalkeeper. Because Thibaut Courtois um, pushed to be allowed to, to move to Real Madrid. Um, they wanted Alisson. Liverpool beat them to Alisson. Um, if you do a head-to-head comparison of the two goalkeepers, OK, Alisson makes the occasional um, bad error, embarrassing error for Liverpool. But uh, there's no doubt he's been a central component alongside Virgil van Dijk in, in improving Liverpool's defence over these two last very successful years and um, I think if you give anyone at Chelsea the choice to go back again and and swap the two goalkeepers um, they they grab the opportunity to have Alisson there rather than Kepa Um, the player has talent Real Madrid were very close to signing him before he uh, moved to England 
although they stepped away from that deal. Um, sure, there, there must be an expectation there that, that he can improve on the performance he's delivered for Chelsea because his performances haven't been very good. Petr Cech's view is clearly a very important one. Um, he's an extremely intelligent individual and a, a hard-working, conscientious goalkeeper um, who had an exceptional career. So his view of of uh, Kepa's potential and um, his ability to improve on his performances is a very important one. But um, the more important view, I guess, here is Frank Lampard's um, because he's the manager who has to uh, live and die on Kepa's performances. And um, you can understand why he wants an improvement in his defence. Um, the numbers in terms of goals conceded in the Premier League and goal difference show the problems he's got, had in defence. You watch the defence and you, you see the, the problems writ large there. Um, they definitely need a, improvements at centre-back. He would prefer to have a, a new left-back in there. Um, and he would prefer to have a goalkeeper in there. And, and as we told you, there are... Um, there are options in terms of Andre Onana, um, who will leave Ajax before too long and will move to a big club and has been offered to Chelsea and there's an interest from Chelsea in him. Um, Mike Mignon, the Leo goalkeeper, has also been offered to Chelsea. Um, interestingly, a player that Ajax have identified as a, as a replacement for Onana. So their goalkeeping scouts who brought Onana in the first place um, rate Mignon. So... Um, it's worth paying attention to that. Um, I think more relevant to this decision is the cost and the amount of investment Chelsea have in Kepa. The transfer fee and his wages being very high. Um, how do you offload a goalkeeper like that? It's you know similar to the issue that Manchester United have with David De Gea, although the salary level for Kepa isn't anything like the um, you know the highest wage in the Premier League that. David De Gea has, but if you can't offload the player, um, that's a lot of money to have invested in someone who cannot play if he's second choice goalkeeper. You can't can't have two very good goalkeepers on your books and give both of them um, consistent game time, which you can do in every other position in the field. Lampard obviously played alongside Petr Cech for his entire Chelsea career, uh, well, almost his entire career, but um, Lampard has a lot of respect for Czech's opinion. And if Czech believes that Kepa can come through this dip in form and can uh, get better and progress, then potentially this is a problem that can be overcome. After all, Chelsea are third in the table in, a, in the FA Cup final, um, still in the Champions League, albeit in a very... Uh, uh, precarious position in their particular. Um, <laughs> I, think it, I think it's worse than precarious, Ian. <laughs> worse than precarious, yes, indeed. A very disadvantageous position in their Champions League campaign. However, um, I think it would be fair to say that uh, you could support Lampard's view that um, he's probably achieved more than was expected of him in his first season. Um, and certainly if they make Champions League, uh, then that will be the case, i.e. for next season, obviously. I mean, not winning the tournament.
Interestingly, uh, it was Chelsea, of course, who uh, embarrassed, it has to be said, Manchester United at Wembley last Sunday evening, uh, beating them 3-0 and very convincingly in a game which was surprising as much as anything else for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's team selection and tactics, where for some bizarre and he's not made any um, reasonable argument otherwise, Solskjaer uh, decided to field only one of his very prolific front three. Uh, he seemed to, in doing so, extract the momentum from the team with regards to their goal-scoring uh, input and potential. And as a result, they are not returning to Wembley for the final. Um, the only justification, Duncan, could be that he sees Champions League qualification as much more of a priority than winning the FA Cup. But that seems an odd thing to do. Let's face it. You're not talking about players being fatigued or having you know, had a long season. They had a long break before restart. And Solskjaer, I think quite rightly, has been facing a lot of questions with regards to the decisions he made about Sunday's team selection as well as the tactics he chose. Uh, and as myself, amongst others, pointed out on Twitter, um, Lampard had already expressed publicly his fear that the defensive frailties of Chelsea would be exposed by potentially by a front three of Rashford, Martial and Greenwood, only to turn up at Wembley and find that Rashford was the only one who was starting in that game. Is there is there any explanation for this in terms of what's rational or not? I actually have a lot of sympathy for Solskjaer here. Um, hang on, hang on, Claxon, Claxon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you have to, and we noted this before the game, you have to uh, account for the fact that Chelsea had two extra days of preparation time for this FA Cup semi-final um, over Manchester United, which is unfair, um, but also not uncommon in English um, fixture scheduling. Um, you know, managers in the Premier League have been complaining about this for years, and uh, the Premier League clearly doesn't care about um, trying to make scheduling fair. It's it's about what suits the TV companies, and you know they're doing it in a project restart post-COVID um, scenario where they have to get the big games played as quickly as possible. But certainly for Solskjaer, it made it harder for him because he, he didn't have as much preparation time. He talked about that publicly before the match. You can argue that um, that might not be the best thing to do in terms of a psych from a psychological perspective for your players. But again, it's not uncommon for managers to note that they have less preparation time. Priority of Champions League qualification, again, we know what Manchester United want. We know what the Glazers want. We know how important finances are to them. They've sacked two managers for failing to qualify for the Champions League. Um, David Moyes, who was famously sacked immediately after um, he failed to get Champions League qualification because it allowed them to reduce his uh, payoff because he had a bonus that was dependent on Champions League qualification, and Louis van Gaal, who was sacked despite winning the FA Cup, 
Um, and just after winning the FA Cup, he was he, he was informed that he was being dismissed um, for failing to qualify for the Champions League. It's particularly important to them this year because they will lose uh, significant sponsorship money from Adidas in particular if they fail to qualify for the Champions League for a second consecutive season. And of course, as we've said many times, they have been hit very hard by COVID. Um, the club has uh, been extremely generous in the way that they've dealt with COVID and that they haven't laid staff off. Even um, match day staff have been retained uh, through the pandemic and they've put quite a lot of money into the community on top of that. They haven't thought about furloughing. They haven't reduced their players' wages. They've taken as strong a stance in terms of um, the amount of money they've invested into COVID, dealing with COVID as any club. And But that has repercussions um, for their balance sheet. And while they can afford to get through this, the Glazers, as we know, are very conscious of keeping the balance sheet good, of being able to take money out of the club for uh, in dividends and director's fees each year. So there is a pressure internally on Manchester United staff to get Champions League qualification and to keep expenditure down in the transfer market as much as possible, something else we've, we've talked about. So for Solskjaer to prioritise um, Champions League qualification through the Premier League over the FA Cup is understandable. It's what his employers would want. I think where there is an argument, though, is did he need to rotate as much in this game? Um, normally, managers in this situation will balance their squad use over the previous weeks um, so that they can have a strong team in every match um, by making minor rotations maybe one, two, three players per game in the preceding games. They look at the fixture list and, and we all knew that, the, that Manchester United were going to have this condensed schedule. They look at it over a period of time and they, uh, they, built, they, they uh, play their players accordingly so they have the strongest average um, performance on the pitch as possible. And you know, Sir Alex Ferguson is a, a past master of this. Um, and Solskjaer would be well aware of that. You know, there's stories about Ferguson telling players weeks in advance that he was going to rest them for a particular game um, with another game in mind. Um, that was a, a, an important part of his management style. You look at what Solskjaer has done. Um, they played the same lineup in five consecutive Premier League games ahead of um, this match. Then they had two changes for the Crystal Palace game, one of those being injury-enforced. Of the seven Premier League games they've played in the spread of less than a month, with uh, the FA Cup tie against Norwich City also included in that period, he's made just four changes to the starting lineup in those seven Premier League games, which is an incredibly small number in any circumstance. Um, at any club um, to to rotate so little, to play a consistent team in the way he has. And you, again, you can understand why, because they've been playing very well. They've been scoring goals. Um, he needed to improve the goal difference to to have a chance of, uh, of Champions League qualifications through the Premier League. But the repercussions of that have been obvious. We've, we've seen 
in the latter games. We saw against Aston Villa, the, the team started sluggishly. We saw against Southampton, they didn't look as strong in the field. So eventually this physical output catches up on players. And remember, this is being done in a, in a period where you're coming back from very unusual uh, long break, um, an unusual mini pre-season, different training methods being used, um, kind of the specialists in the Premier League trying to work out and guess and, and, and uh, come up with a system that would get the players fit for um, circumstances they've never experienced before. So he didn't need to play this, the, the, the strong team again and again and again. He decided to do that and that effectively forced him to play a weaker side in the FA Cup tie and led to the defeat. I think one other thing should be mentioned here is that he, he basically put the same formation and tactics out as he did the last time he played Chelsea in the Premier League. So even the, the forward line with Dan James in it, I think there were two um, personnel changes, one enforced to the lineup he played in that game where they beat Chelsea 2-0. But it's quite strange that he, he used the same tactics because although they won that game 2-0, if you remember the match, they were extremely fortunate to win it because that's the game in which Harry Maguire should have been sent off um, for violent conduct in the first half, but somehow the VAR managed to miss him um, kicking Michi Batshuayi in the testicles. Um, and they had two, um, two of the Chelsea goals overruled by VAR decisions. So... To, to play the same formation because it worked against Chelsea, if that was his thinking, um, seems odd because in reality it didn't work. They, they won that game because refereeing decisions went in their favour and you watch that game over again and you'll see Chelsea actually played pretty well for the majority of it and, um, and, and really had circumstances go against them to produce a result, which, which should be noted might be one that's fundamental to Manchester United qualifying for the Champions League if they do get through because um, had Maguire been sent off in that match, you would expect him to lose it. He'd have been suspended for two further matches, um, which Manchester United took points from. Without those points, even this late impressive attempt to get into the Champions League from league position, I think would have been impossible. Only gamble Solskjaer is not something that we normally <laughs> would say, but seems to be he's doubled down on Champions League qualification, given uh, what Duncan has explained regarding uh, the uh, rotation of players, which led to their 3-0 defeat at Wembley at the hands of Chelsea, which saw Chelsea progress to an FA Cup final against Arsenal, which will take place later this month. 16 years ago, Duncan, seems a long time ago, March 2004, a young man, aged 20 at the time, came over to England with his dad, met Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United's Carrington Training Ground, was given the whole tour and the meet and greet and was hopefully, in Manchester United's terms, persuaded to sign for the Old Trafford Club. That player was Aryan Robin. However, as history tells us, Robin signed for Chelsea later that summer. And we now have the situation where another player, 
who, younger than Robin, admittedly, 17-year-old Jude Bellingham from Birmingham City, was given a similar reception at the Carrington Training Ground with the now Sir Alex Ferguson and has chosen to go instead to Borussia Dortmund. Now, you led the way on this, Duncan, as ever, with regards to uh, Bellingham's potential transfer. Uh, you said all along that his father, who is effectively his agent and representative, was more concerned about the player's development and uh, opportunity to play first-team football than they were about money and salary, etc., etc. And Bellingham has now confirmed in a very dodgy video featuring um, Borussia Dortmund's players singing the Beatles classic, Hey Jude. I don't recommend it for anyone who wants to go onto social media uh, and watch and listen. Please do mute it if you really have to. Um, what does this say about Magnus's, um power to attract younger players, Duncan? I, it seems to me that, you know, there was a time, and I know it seems like a, you know, hackneyed old argument where everyone in England wanted to play for Manchester United. And yet, yet again, a young player has chosen to go somewhere else. And in this case, interestingly, to the Bundesliga. I think what, what that video tells us is he certainly didn't join Dortmund because of their musical ability. And, and I, I, I heartily agree with you. Avoid it at all costs. <laughs> to be fair, I, I think that, you know, they are, they are a football club, not a, mus- not a musical <laughs> venue. <laughs> which is which is something they should bear in mind next time they do it. <laughs> next time they do a video. <laughs> um, yeah, you, it, that was the information from the Bellingham camp from the start. Um, when Manchester United came in very aggressively um, and tried to sign him from Birmingham in the in the January window, um, the eventual deal I'm told that from Dortmund is for 27 million euros uh, guaranteed. To Birmingham, I think it's telling what Bellingham himself said um, after the, the transfer was announced. He said, um, I'm incredibly excited to have joined one of Europe's biggest clubs, the direction they're heading in and how much they helped to improve young players made it an easy decision for myself and my family. So it, it's that um, is what he uh, they have sold to Bellingham, which is come to us. Um, look at our track record of taking young players. Um, like Pulisic, like Jaden Sancho, giving them um, playing time in the first team and turning them into top players in Europe and and, uh, and setting you on a career path or, or furthering you on a career path to be one of the top players in Europe. And um, Dortmund have showed themselves at being very good at uh, judging who the right talents are to sign. And they've shown themselves to be very good at convincing them to sign and progressing their careers. This is a big move for Dortmund. This is a lot more money than they've spent on signing players like Sancho in the past. So it's a very, they're kind of doubling down on on their strategy here. Um, If you go back to those podcasts we did in January in Bellingham, um, you'll you'll see me reporting from various um, scouts and um, sports directors in Europe that I chatted to saying, yes, this this guy is a very, very serious talent. Um, one of the best players we've seen to come out of England. We can understand why there is such an interest 
in him. Um, Chelsea were involved as well. Um, obviously, Manchester United were involved. Most of the top clubs were looking at it. Um, Dortmund put an offer in, in January and, and continued working on it. Manchester United, as you say, worked very hard on it. They had him at the training ground to try and convince the player to come. But in the end, the decision was the, path, the better pathway, um, the better club to be at, at his age, which is still just 17, is Dortmund. Um, and um, yeah, you have to regard that as a loss for Manchester United because they quite publicly um, courted the player and uh, and offered a lot of money uh, both to the player and to Birmingham City to to try and make that deal happen. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Sing a sad song and make it better. That's all we're saying. Um, for the rest of the Bundesliga season that you're going to play next next year, uh, we wish you well and good luck. And we will be definitely following your progress as we have been on the Transfer Window podcast. Uh, we have uh, an interesting situation, obviously, uh, Duncan, with regards to Champions League places. Everything else has all been but decided. Uh, it wasn't so long ago we were celebrating the end of Alan Pardew's eight-year contract at Newcastle United. But it seems Jose Mourinho, in his defeat of Leicester City by three goals, has in fact helped his old club, Manchester United, uh, to uh, enhance their chances of a Champions League place next season. I'm sure there's an irony there that uh, you will recognise. Yeah, well, maybe there's a little argument that uh, Mourinho has qualified Manchester United for the Champions League again after uh, after doing it in his first season. Um, big, important win over Leicester City. It, it puts it in Manchester United's hands completely, given that they have two games left and and play Leicester City in that final game of the season. And um, I wonder if uh, Adidas, you know, long-term sponsors of uh, of Mourinho are, are are particularly happy that uh, that defeat of Leicester City is uh, looks like getting their uh, their major English um, club back into the Champions League next season for them. We love the idea of a bonus for Jose because he does need the money after all. Finally, before we do Heroes and Villains, we should mention as well, and uh, I think it's important that we do, that the job at Bristol City Football Club obviously is up for grabs and it by all accounts, and certainly it is the case in the um, football community, one of the best jobs in the championship with a benevolent and uh, financially secure owner, as well as a well-structured run club. Um, and they have offered the job to Liverpool legend Stephen Gerrard. But it's our understanding that Gerrard has turned down the opportunity to leave Rangers as we've reported previously in the podcast, Gerard's contract at Rangers, which he recently signed an extension to, runs out in 2024, which is no coincidence because that's exactly the same date, June 30th, 2024, you heard it here first, is when Jurgen Klopp's contract at Liverpool expires. In the frame right now is former Brighton of Albion manager Chris Hutton, who of course got Brighton promoted from the Championship to the Premier League, as well as uh, 
our old friend John Terry, winner of several Donkey Awards, which of course must add to his CV, Duncan, with regards to when he um, applies for jobs. I'm sure you must mention it uh, then. Is this any surprise that uh, Stevie has turned down the chance to manage what is, as I said, it was described to me by one um, technical director as a plum job? Well, Gerard has unfinished business at Rangers. A lot invested in him there. Um, but I, I will go back to what we reported on the podcast when Gerard surprised people by taking the Rangers job, um, which is his thinking about Rangers was it was the best preparation he could have to become Liverpool manager. He sees parallels in Glasgow um, to the rivalry um, between Liverpool and Everton in Liverpool and the, the you know the, the the constant focus on performance of players and managers in those two cities. Um, he wanted to take the risk um, of moving out of his comfort zone at, uh, at Liverpool's um, academy and uh, managing a club. And, and he basically saw it as a training ground um, to make himself a better manager for Liverpool when that opportunity came along. And the idea was that the next job would be Liverpool. So um, it doesn't come as a surprise to me that um, the latest offer he's had from Bristol City, although it's, a, as you say, it's an interesting job and, and one of the better championship clubs you could go to, he um, is passing on because um, he's waiting uh, for Liverpool to open up and is prepared to spend more time uh, training himself at Rangers to get ready for that job. Well, having worked in Scottish football, I can certainly um, attest to the fact that it, in terms of being an apprenticeship for um, scrutiny, intensity, working at a club like Rangers is certainly one of the best roads that Gerard could have chosen and the idea that he will stay there until the opportunity that Manage Liverpool comes up is a very wise decision on his choice. Speaking of wise decisions, we have come to almost the end of today's Transfer Window podcast and it being early in the week, we're going to do our Heroes and Villains segment. And Duncan, I will invite you to choose your villain of the last few days before I will nominate a hero. Um, I think villain for this week will be Pep Guardiola, who after his defeat um, to Arsenal gave one of his um, famously tetchy press conferences, performances at, at Wembley. Seems to have a habit of uh, coming up with um, interesting statements at that stadium, whether he wins matches or loses them. Um, and uh, having lost to Arsenal, what you said was, and, and Arsenal have all the respect for what they are on the pitch, not much off the pitch, but on the pitch a lot. Um, and this follows a week in which he'd basically gone about attacking various Premier League clubs for their um, actions uh, and scrutiny of Manchester City's um, adherence to financial fair play rules in his press conferences. Um, argued that uh, that they deserve to be apologised to um, because they hadn't broken the rules, which was an interesting statement given that Cass had found them guilty of contravening financial fair play regulations. But obviously in Guardiola's view, that uh, particular transgression um, 
doesn't matter. And uh, and he feels that um, the other English football clubs should be apologising to Manchester City for the pressure that has been put on him and the club uh, during this long period of investigation and trial. And despite being fined €10 million, Euros, um, obviously City are innocent of everything. I will nominate my hero for the last few days. Uh, I'm going to give an, an honourable mention to Kieran Tierney, uh, who set up the second goal for Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang in their victory, fun enough, over Manchester City on Saturday, uh, after which uh, Pep made those comments that Duncan has referred to. Uh, wonderful bit of left-back play, a 1-2, and then uh, something we don't normally see these days, a lovely in-swinging uh, pass into Aubameyang's feet where he scored the second and decisive goal. However, I'm going to nominate a hero who Duncan doesn't expect, but I'm sure he knows well, and that's Cristiano Ronaldo, who's become the first player to score 50 goals in Serie A, La Liga and the Premier League. Quite an achievement, I think you'll all agree. And uh, in terms of his Juventus career, 50 goals in 61 games. Just think about that for a second and ask yourself, if there's one player, and bear in mind, he's 35, one player you'd want in your team, he's the guy. Thanks for listening today. Uh, you can continue the debate with us. And as you know, we welcome your questions, your comments, and the ability to commune with you. Uh, do it on our social media channels, which are at Transfer Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Duncan and I have our personal accounts. Duncan's on at Duncan Castles, and I am at GarboSJ. If you want to listen to the podcast, you can do so through all your normal podcast platforms, but also on our newly or relatively newly formed YouTube channel. Just search Transfer Window Podcast on YouTube and you'll find us there. And of course, if you like what you hear, please give something back. Log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review and the community will get bigger and of course the debate become more interesting. All that's left for me to say is stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.